We all have questions about the Bible. At Milwaukee Chi Alpha, we want to take the questions we have about the Old Testament and use them to get us closer to Jesus and what we're calling the XA Learning Hour. And we strongly believe that if God is real, if what we believe is true, our questions will lead us back to Him. So let's start this journey in the XA Learning Hour, questioning the Old Testament. today. Um, and there's so much in this story. Um, and uh, if you've read it recently, you might have all kinds of questions. However, we also encounter something like uh, like a lullaby effect on this story too. If we've heard it a bunch of times, the oddness of the story doesn't quite seem to stick out to us. It's just a story we know. Um, and so one of our goals today is to kind of examine what the fall story is really telling us. What's the point? Um, of this story. And, and just a bit of a disclaimer, um, as we go through this, and especially as you read, we're going to read this together, um, story uh, questions are going to pop up. And some of the questions that might come up are things that we just as Westerners have a certain, like we just want to anal analyze certain things, how true is this, or that really happened like that. And some of those questions are good, but it's also we want to keep coming back to the guiding principle of what is this passage teaching us? This is a very important, critical story. In fact, so much is uh, affected, all of humanity is affected by the events of this story. And we want to know what God wants to tell us through this and what uh, the Torah, the Bible, uh, is teaching us in this. Um, and so... Uh, some questions we might not get to, we might not really touch on. Um, and if you have follow-up questions, we can address them as we go or maybe afterwards um, as we try to get to what is the point of this story. And just one more thought here. This, this Bible is so masterfully put together. Um, specifically, uh, Genesis 1 through uh, 12 is this really beautiful story of like essentially it's like a preamble of the whole book of the whole bible um and it's masterfully articulate and connected and interwoven and layered and so we're going to do our best to kind of try to unpack some of the layers and see all the things that are happening and i really hope that you guys see the beauty of scripture as we ask questions um, so let's hop into the passage um, we're going to start in chapter 2, in verse 8. Okay, so this is kind of the second account of creation. Um, it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord, made, uh, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watered the garden flowing from Eden, and there it was separated into four water heads. The name of the first is the Fijan. Fijan? Um, it winds through the entire Pishon. I don't know why I said whatever. Um, it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of the land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of, the, of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed, it up, closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he, and he had taken out of the man. He brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called 
woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will, certainly, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord, call, Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to, chi to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your lives. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Okay, deep breath. Now we've just read a, a lot, and the story has is, is, uh, got a whole lot of different things moving here. But I want to just start by kind of speaking to what is the point of this story. And we're going to dig at some questions that, that, work, that are going to come up from this. Um, and we'll probably come back to redefining or uh, establishing with more clarity what the point is. And this story is depicting, one, like we have a perfect picture of humanity in the garden. And God gives them... A rule of which, how to follow, how to live. This is what you can do here. But this story is really telling us, the, it depicts the fall of humanity, this original sin that scarred us as humans and our world. And now we are out of proportion today from who we were meant to be. Um, we were made for this garden, this place in union with God. But we have fallen out of connection with God because of this these acts that were out of a desire we're going to talk about desire quite a bit today <clears throat> um and and one of the questions that uh, i i've i've come across in the past week or two as i was kind of thinking about this um is how how literal should we take this story and this is one of those questions where i don't know how fruitful it is for us to examine too much because that's not the point of the story the point is not to find out if it's literal or not however we as uh in our thinking we like to try to find out how how true this is, how literal we should take it, um, and does it really matter? Um, and, and if you want to say this is a figurative story, um, I, I don't know if it affects all that much of the point. However, I do think it is better for us to view it as the story actually happened, and it happened in this way, because of the characters we see. Adam and Eve are characters that are not just in this story, but they continue on to be participants in not only this next story, but their lineage, right? This is the, after, uh, you can look at Genesis chapter 5. 
And it starts from Adam to Noah and is walking through the genealogies, right? And Luke also accounts for this in, in Luke chapter 3. Yeah, that's what it is. Luke chapter 3. And he walks back the lineage from Jesus backwards all the way. And Adam is included in this lineage. So the Bible is treating these people, these characters, as having lived. And I think that matters and that gives weight to this story. And how it happened, maybe this is a telling to help us simplify the reality. But the point here stands. This is a story about what happened in the beginning. What separated us from God. What was the entry point of what we now experience as evil and corruption? How, how come we now live in this broken world? And this is the story that, de- that shows us what happened. Adam and Eve were tempted and acted upon what, uh, what the snake uh, tells them to do in questions. And we're going to examine that a little bit. Um, but let's start by talking about these trees in the garden. Um, these are interesting, right? There's like super trees in the garden <laughs> and they're at the center. Um, and there's actually a little bit of debate as to whether these, these trees are both in, in the center or if it's just the tree of life that's in the center and the tree of knowledge of good and evil is unspecified in the Hebrew. Um, it, it is clear that the tree of life is in the center and, it's, and there's wiggle room as to say whether the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is also in the center. Um, and so in the NIV, they translate it as they're both there. In other translations, like the ESV, it kind of leaves that room of like maybe there's a little bit of distinction um, between, between the locations of these two trees. But ir- regardless, God has created these two distinctly special trees. And to eat of them is something you, like unique is going to happen. But it's interesting that God only prohibits eating from one of the trees. It's not, he, he doesn't prohibit them from eating from the tree of life, which he later says you can't do that now because then they'll be able to uh, live forever and, know, and be like God. Um, so uh, he's going to prohibit that later, but at first that's not a prohibition. Um, but I think it's worth noting what this tree of life is talking about, right? What is this? And this is actually, the, the, the Bible picks up this picture a couple different times. One in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 18, um, uh, uh, Solomon presumably is writing about this and talks about uh, wisdom and understanding is a tree of life. And, and that picture of a tree is a, is a biblical idea um, that the cross also symbolizes a tree. And but then in Revelation 22, we get this uh, uh, final picture of being brought into the city, through the gates of the city, to the tree of life. There's a, the tree of life is back at the end in, in the restored creation. So the tree of life is at the beginning and at the end. In the middle, we get this little picture about wisdom and understanding. And I think that's interesting. Um, there's something about what God is giving through his life is wisdom and, and, and correction and teaching. Um, and some will even note that like Torah, the teaching, is connected here. That wisdom and uh, the tree of life connected to the Torah itself. Um, that's another uh, maybe a rabbit hole for another time. Um, but I wanted to kind of speak to it like the couple different places that the tree of life shows up. <clears throat> um, at the end of the story, when God banishes them from the garden, he puts warrior angels to guard the way back to the tree of life. So it's, I think it's poetic and, and beautiful that in Revelation, after all is said and done, there's being, we're brought back in through this gate to the tree of life. There's a restoration that's happening from, from being exiled to back to restored into his... Uh, and to his family. But this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this one is interesting. Um, why does God put this tree here? And on top of this, like, what is the knowledge of good and evil? And why, wh- why is this important to the story? Um, so at this point, we have a perfect world, and humanity is perfect, right? They're doing everything exactly how God wants them. They're living free in union with God. Um, there's no corruption, and he gives them a command. He tells them what to do. And so in that sense, he has told them what is right and what is wrong. Um, and we can kind of like uh, uh, think about what life was like before they ate the tree and what was, what was good and evil in, that, in their mindset. They didn't know evil. That was not something they knew. They knew good because God created a good world. And he says that these trees, um, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 
uh, 9, he made all these trees grow out, pleasing to the eye, and good for food. So the concept of good is there. Delight and joy, right? Um, his creation is good. But evil, evil is, is the only context we can assume they know in that sense is that God says, don't do this. And so we can kind of speculate their understanding of good and evil is more in the framework of maybe true or false, this objective reality of this. Is, it's true that this is what God wants, and this would be wrong, false, bad to not follow what he wants. And I think in, in this pre-fallen garden, we can see humanity um, as, as living in a good, true place in union with God that knows about evil in the sense that I know not to disobey his command for us. But they don't know evil yet. They don't know it in an experiential way. And one of the books I've been reading by, uh, it's a rabbi, David Foreman, um, uh, he's trying to expound on that concept of knowing, that knowledge here um, is something that like we can kind of know about something, but to experience something is to know it in a deeper sense, right? And I've, I've heard this recently, um, I hear this often, uh, especially among college students, about like, you're learning about stuff in class, but you don't really learn it until you do it. And, and experiencing college life is about ex like experiencing, knowing it in that sense. I can hear about what it's like to live there, but to know it is to participate, right? And I think that's a little bit what's happening here when we talk about the tree of knowledge of good and evil, is when you, when you eat of this tree, you will then experience what evil really is like, good and evil. And as God, God is telling them, you know not to do this, right? Um, so I think this is interesting. And there's probably a whole lot more. You maybe even brought up some more questions to ask. Um, but that's a little bit about these trees. Now, I want to talk about this snake a little bit. Because the snake is the one who comes in and he begins to question humans, the human's thinking, right? And he, begin, and he begins to question their understanding of God and God's word. And this tree in particular, right? So if you see in the beginning of chapter 3, we see him speaking to it. And, and God really say that, right? So we, we kind of have to ask for a second, like, who is the snake? Um, and there's a diff different, uh, few different concepts here um, that I've been learning about. Because um, as Christians, we, view, we see the snake as the enemy. This is Satan. This is the devil. He is... Um, showing up in the form of a snake here. Um, and we, there's lots of reasons we, and I still hold, that is the best way I believe that we can understand this character. But I think it's worth noting other perspectives. So from the Jewish perspective, it's, at least from a modern interpretation, this snake is simply a snake. It's an animal. And I think that's important. We can, we can hear that and, and, and learn from this. Um, because the implications here, I think, are interesting. Um, and he's going to draw on this a little bit in his book, that uh, Rabbi David Foreman. Um, but just, just examining this snake as simply an animal, um, it, it brings a whole different set of questions. And there's a reason I started by reading in chapter 2, right? Because we start with the picture of God creating this garden. And then there's this river scene. We're not going to deal with that one because I think that, that is addressed later. Um, every word here is really important. And so there's a reason those words are there. But that's not important for this conversation right now. So when verse 15, when he gets back to the, this garden, he gives the command, don't eat it. The very next thing I think is interesting. Instead of carrying into the false story, right? We have the command, don't do this. It would naturally make sense that we would go right then to when they don't, when they'll fall it. But the next thing that happens is God said it's not good for them to be alone, man to be alone. And then he goes on to this, like looking for the suitable helper element. Um, and I think as we, we begin to uh, grasp who this snake is and why the snake is in the story and what the snake is, is, is showing us, I think it really lies in these verses, verse 18 to 21, about deciding, like, is God is looking for that suitable helper for the man. And so the first thing God says, after he says, it's not good for man to be alone, it says, now, uh, he formed out of the ground all of the wild, all of the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to Adam, 
and Adam names them, but among them was no suitable helper. Okay, so, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, but like, our uh, 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 humans are not to be like found, a dog is not a man's best friend, right? Like that's not really our partner in this world. Man needs something else. So clearly God wants to provide a better, more suitable helper than animals. Um, And so then he creates Eve. And it's perfect. And there's so much here that we can pull from about the equality of men and women. And I would love to take time on there. We'll have to come back to that another time. Um, But I want to make that comment because this is a suitable helper. um, A helper who is equal to and an opposite to Adam. And they together will reign and rule over this garden, over this creation. And God has made them to be together. And this whole scene is not for God's sake. He knows who a suitable helper is for Adam. This is for Adam's sake. And God is bringing all the animals so that he can see clearly and experience and know, right, in that way, that there is no suitable helper to be found among any of the animals. God will provide a suitable helper perfectly suited for him in Eve, a woman. And the two of them will become one flesh, right? And there's this perfect picture of unity and partnership in God's perfect garden for man and for woman to reign together in unison and in freedom without shame. And they are naked. And we're going to talk about that idea naked in a little bit. But I think what this story wants is leading us to, especially when we bring the serpent back in in chapter 3 here, is what makes us human. If you remember, we started off in the creation story of asking, like, this story isn't so much about how God created, but who he is and who we are. And I deeply believe that this story here expounds more on who we are as humans. And what makes us distinctly made in an image is in God's image. What makes us human and not animals? Um, as, as God brings all the animals before Adam, he's showing them all the ways that they're, they're, you are not like them. You are different. But then the snake comes in. And this is interesting because the snake is talking and he's reasoning. He's, he's seen as crafty, right? Um, and he's arguing with Eve about this stuff. He's taking on a full conversation. And he's walking. Um, so this snake is very not like a snake. It's very, like, very much like a human in, in a sense, right? All the things that we would think about are uh, uh, for us defining us as humans. Reasoning is one of those things we often think about. Talking, we, animals don't talk in our world. <laughs> so why is the snake talking? Uh, and it seems to be, there's something about what God is trying to help us see what makes us made in his image as humans is what's being discussed here and being uh, attacked here by, by the serpent. <clears throat> and it's interesting that it defines him as cunning. Because um, that same word is actually, uh, uh, if you uh, look at the Hebrew, um, the word cunning is, is the same word for naked. Um, said a little differently, I think. But um, if you were listening to this as, because this is, this is a story that was told, right? This is in, from an oral culture. Um, so they would have been telling this story to others. And so you end at uh, chapter 2 with Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, the serpent was more crafty, but that word sounds exactly like naked. So it's, it's like it was meant to be like, wait, 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 what? what? Is the snake naked? No, it's crafty. Okay, that's interesting. Why, what is going on here? And that word is intentionally put here because, again, this, this connection between the animals and humanity. God wants us to see what makes us distinctly human. And the, and the argument that the rabbi brings up is that this animal is attacking Eve in her understanding, but doing so fairly innocently because an animal only will do what? What it's inclined to do. An animal doesn't uh, listen to, it doesn't have a teaching, doesn't have a Bible, doesn't have something that it's learning from. It literally is created by God to act upon its very inclinations. That's what makes an animal an animal. An animal will never go on a diet to lose weight. Animals don't do that. Animals will always act upon their inclinations within them. And in some way, it's as if the, the snake is saying, when asking Eve, did God say that? So what? He said that to you, but you want it, don't you? What, what makes you different than us? We, if we want something, we, we eat. 
And it's as if the, the snake is suggesting that almost in an innocent way, a naked way in that way, that eat it. What, so what if God said something, but why don't you act on it? Yeah, go ahead. Maybe the snake represents our desires. Yes, yeah. absolutely. That's exactly where I was going with this. There's something about the snake is acting upon this internal desire. And, we think, and I think in, in creation, in the garden there, humanity knew how to balance an internal passion and desire in tandem with God speaking and giving them a command. And distinctly, we see in Scripture, I think, the story is playing on those two voices from God. That God made us with passions and desires. And just like the, the animals have passions or like a gut instinct to do something, in that way a desire, what makes us different, distinctly different, is as humans, we also have passion, but it's deeper and richer. But then also we have, well, God has given us his word, his spoken word. He tells us how to act and to live. And in, that, in, the, crea- in, in the Garden of Eden, we see humanity have that in, in tandem in balance. That they know how to have passions and desires, but also know how to follow and trust God until this moment. And the snake begins to question Eve's interpretation of the command of God. Which, if you look at that, some of the ways that Eve then retells the command, it changes a little bit. Because now she starts talking about fruit, not just of the tree. God says, don't eat of the tree. And here, Eve says, don't eat the fruit of the tree. That's interesting. I don't know if that makes, makes, uh, brings too much depth to it, but I think it's interesting. Um, but she also says... Uh, you must not even touch it. That God didn't say touching was a problem. Um, he just said, don't, don't eat of the tree. And she says, don't even touch it or you will die. Um, I think another translation kind of, or lest you will die, as if there's almost a little bit of probability that maybe, she's like, well, maybe I'll die kind of thing. And it's interesting, this, the snake picks up the same phrase that God does. God says, you will certainly die. And, he's, and then the snake says, you will not certainly die. Eve doesn't use certainly die, but both the snake and God uses certainly die. Only the snake is attacking it, saying, you can't trust God's word. You can't trust what he said. He's not actually going to kill you. You're not actually going to die. And it's as if he's like, trust your gut on this, you know, trust your desire more than anything else. And I think this is where I believe as Christians, we can see the enemy at work here, wanting to distort and twist desire out of proportion. Um, and that's where I hold on a sec to that question. That's where we see um, after that interaction, we see the woman after hearing that looks at the fruit of the tree and it says it was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and then also desirable for gaining wisdom. She adds this third element before God says this is good for food and pleasing to the eye. But she says those two things and then adds desirable for gaining wisdom. Now this desire is awakened. Now this desire is, is, is driving her to act differently. And she wants to gain wisdom and understanding. She wants to contemplate the, what's going on here and know good and evil for herself. Know in that deeper sense. Um, do you have a question you want to come back to? Um, I mean, well, technically, in a, in a way, she died. They, they both died. Just God didn't make it clear when. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. The certainty, like, God was right when he said, certainly you will die. He certainly die. Like, just never said when. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the snake wants to deceive Eve into thinking, it's not what you think. And you can't trust what he said. I think it's worth, we're talking about this, was the serpent, the snake was the serpent, Satan, um, and... I think even as looking at this as the snake as a human, this idea of like, or the snake as a animal and listening to the internal desire, that narrative still works so well, even within the Christian mindset of the snake being Satan. Because isn't that what Satan tries to do? He tries to make us follow our own desires and our own instincts over what we know God is saying. And so I think like, I think whether it's a snake or whether it's Satan, as we believe, like we still see this dynamic of the enemy trying to 
make us listen to what we want yeah. or what we feel is good yeah. over what God is saying. And those become much more muddled since the fall because of the fall. Yeah. And to build on that, I want to look a little bit more at this desire. And I, I found this example very interesting, um, exposing the desire that is now uh, tainted in us and out of control. Um, and so I'm going to I'm going to read four hypothetical scenarios. And I want to I'm curious if you can spot the imposter of these four scenarios. OK, so um, these are all like uh, a moral dilemmas, so to speak. OK. First one, uh, is it okay to take a dying man off a respirator, right? Okay, second one, my elderly mother needs help organizing her house before she moves, but my kids need me to help him prepare, or my kid needs me to help him prepare for finals. With whom do I spend the evening? Okay, the third one, should Billy lie to the teacher to protect his friend Bobby when the teacher asks him whether Bobby was cheating on his test? And the fourth one, it's a dark and rainy night in Manhattan. You throw your trusty uh, uh, suburban into reverse and begin to back out of your parking spot when you hear a sickening thud. You get out of the car to behold, and behold, right behind you, a shiny black Lexus convertible with badly dented front end. And you look around, the street is entirely dark, not a soul to be seen. Do you leave a note or not? So in all four of these scenarios, right, we have some, some sort of um, moral dilemma here. Okay, the first one, a dying man taking off a respirator with kind of like tension of prolonging life or improving that quality of life for that time being. We have the elderly mother um, needing help, but also your kid needs help. And so you have being a responsible mom in tension with being a caring daughter for your mom. Um, then we have this Billy and Bobby scenario versus loyalty and yet honesty are intention. Loyalty to be a good friend and cover his honor or honesty, right? Because it matters to be honest. And then we have the scene in Manhattan and you just badly dented a car. Do you leave a note or not? Which one is the imposter? Can anyone guess? Which one doesn't match the other? Which one is different? The first one, okay. Anyone else have a guess? Okay. Do you take him off the Lexus board or not? Okay, that's the interesting. Ones that are like more clear cut. Sure. Okay. Okay. Like they never say like, oh, is he dying? Of I think this is interesting. Disease, you know? Yeah. Okay, so here's here's where I, the the author who wrote this, Rabbi David Foreman, um, he he tries to help you see that all uh, and three of them there are clear values in tension. Mm-hmm. They have one value pitted against another value, and both are good values. And there's, no clear, and there's no clear right or wrong. One is not necessarily inherently wrong, except one of them has a clear wrong idea intention. I realize this point. I was going to say, if I really wanted to help my friend, I would want them to learn. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay, yeah. That's val- valid, valid. your point. Yes. So in the last one, in the rainy night in Manhattan, you have to do something good is to leave a note. But what is the opposite opposing value in tandem to that one? Uh, cowardice. Okay, is that a value? You just run. <laughs> so, I don't, say that again. I just gonna say you just run. That's yeah, right. Yeah. So like. Selfishness. Yeah. So what is the value there? What is good about that? <laughs> is there any good there? No. There's no good there. It's only like desire right. to be n- not yeah. not found out. And this, I mean, this is the idea he's trying to get at in this story is like helping you see all the other ones have some sort of like, there's a good on both sides and I don't know which is right or which is best right now. But on that last one, there is only one good and yet I still have a desire not to do that one good, even though the other one I know is wrong. And this is what we live, like this is the living in the life of a fallen world, in the life of knowledge of good and evil, this reality of, that I, there's only one good, 
And yet I still don't want to do it because some desire within me doesn't want to have to deal with that mess. And you can also, you can justify it. Like how we are really good at justifying the thing we want. Sorry, was that No, go for doing? it, please. We're really good at justifying it. Like uh, in this book, he talked about how easy it would be to like, well, they have a Lexus convertible. I'm a college student. Like they have the money. It's not a big deal. Or maybe it was already dented before I got there. Which, like, outside of the situation now, we can look at it and be like, no, that's not right. But in that moment, our desire is really good at coming up and trying to sound just as legit as the other option. Mm-hmm. You can want it to be good. Right? Yeah, I yeah. want it to be good. I'm teaching this person a lesson. Why would you buy such an expensive car? Like, like it's so easy for us to lie to ourselves. It's so easy for our internal desires to come out and... Yeah. Deceive us. And that's that's I think what is being exposed here in the Garden of Eden in the fall is this desire that is now out <coughs> of control. And and it's and it's over it's consumed Eve and she has to she's just gotta take the fruit. She's gotta do it. She's got to eat now because this desire has now been out of proportion. She's lost understanding and hearing how she is distinctly like God. Or we are made in the image of God. And, and, and part of that means that like God is, God knows when to say enough. God knows when to say, I'm going to stop. He stopped creating at the perfect time and displays his beautiful creation. That's part of what Genesis 1, I think, tells us. Is that we see a God who delights and stops. He knows when to say enough. And we are made to be like him. To know when to say enough. And, we, and yet here we see they are falling from that and breaking God's command because we have two voices of God and this passion within us, is, this desire is from God, but yet it's been, now it's been corrupted and twisted and it's, we lose our sense of knowing what's, what's actually good anymore and knowing what God wants us to do because we can always, what Catherine just said, twist it to make it sound like it's right and it seems good to us. It's gotten messed up and out of place. This is the effects of this scene in the fall when desire uh, became out of proportion with also listening to the voice of God. Another element that makes us distinctly human is our relationship to God. And so when, when the story goes on and then they, their eyes are opened and they, they hide, they cover up, right? And then God comes, they hear him coming and he speaks and Adam is afraid. He hid, he hid because he was afraid, <coughs> because he was naked. And it's interesting. Uh, if you if you're, realize you're naked and someone is coming, you probably aren't going to be fearful. You're probably going to feel embarrassed, right? Like embarrassed is, a, is probably a little bit more what we would feel if we were naked and then someone came walking and asking for us. I probably wouldn't be too fearful. Um, fearful is more to do with power. Um, but embarrassed would be a, a, probably a better word. And yet that's not what Adam feels. He doesn't feel embarrassed. He feels fearful. And I think it's interesting that, and I wonder if it's because he hears God speaking and he's immediately reminded of his relationship with God as made in the image of God, who has two voices that he listens to from God, not only his passions, but also God speaking to him. And here God is speaking to him and all of a sudden he's like, oh my gosh. My passions are out of control. I see my nakedness and my desires are now way out of proportion. And I'm hearing also the God who made me. And all of it, it overwhelms him and he is afraid. And I think that's interesting. This idea of nakedness, I think is so interesting. That now, after having seen our desire being out of control, we are no longer okay with being naked. We hide. We can't, we, because it's no longer something we can control. We're, on, we're in fear. <coughs> and we hide not only from God, but we hide from each other. We hide from ourselves. These are, these are the effects of the fall. And I think this story helps us see how deeply affect, like this, this affects our desires being out of whack affect us. We are not fearful and hide. But the last question I want to kind of wrestle with in all of this is, 
why why is God setting this scene in this way? What does it say about who God is? It seems that he's acting a little strange. Why would God put make this garden and in the middle of the garden put two trees that are supernatural and powerful and one of them you can't eat otherwise you're gonna <coughs> die. You know, like if I'm a if I'm a dad and which I am, and I put a knife block in my living room and then told my kids to go play and said, Oh by the way, don't don't play with a knife block. It'll kill you. You know, like so like I, like I would that that doesn't reflect very well on me, does it? As a parent, right? Like why would I do that? That's just that's just not wise. What is God up to here, <coughs> and how um, do we we see Him as good in all of this? And I think it's because He's trying to help us see who we really are, and He's put these humans here to help them see who they are made in His image. They are not like the animals. He's going to show them how they're not like them. He's going to bring Eve into the mix. He's going to see how they're meant and they're free and they're, there's no shame between them. You are made to be with each other, to lean on each other. You're distinctly not like the animals. And I want you to hear, when I say, no, do something, you can trust my word, not just your passions within you. You can bring them into balance. And I think he wants to show us <coughs> how we are like him. That we don't need to listen to other voices that define who we are. You can trust me, I think, is really what we're getting at here. That God wants to show us, now through this story, who we are, and that he made us to be like him. That we don't need to listen to other voices that, that threaten our relationship to him. That threaten that we're not, we're, we're not made in his image. We are loved and desired by God. And he wants us to know who we are in him. We're going to have lots of different noises and, and, and temptations in our world, all the more now in our world today. Um, there's lots of things vying for our attention. And we have this story here to open our eyes to see who we really are. To see that we are made like God and not to just act on our impulses all the time. We are not like an animal. We are not to just give in every time we want to do something. God wants us to see the weight of what happens when we do that. I'm curious if anyone has questions specifically on, on that and the character of God. Because I think there's a lot here about uh, knowing him. And that's really, I want to get us to like seeing God in the story. Well, I think there's just like a disconnect between God in the Old Testament and God in the New Testament. God in the Old Testament seems a lot less forgiving a lot more aggressive, but in the New Testament he's a lot, he's very slow to anger. So I'm, I'm a little interested in like how, like the change in the Bible. Mm, sure. It doesn't imply that God can change the person even though he's supposed to be perfect. Yeah. And you see in the story, the first that he comes in and then he gives out all these punishments. And he brings about judgment on them. So I can see why you say that. And this is a common question I hear all the time. Is why do we see God being so harsh here but it doesn't seem like he's being so harsh in the new testament um but i think the bible is very clear he is one god and he does not change and so if that's the case we have to start digging maybe a little bit from at our assumptions and say is he also is he also gentle and kind in the old testament and is he also harsh in the new testament we were just talking a little bit earlier about that reality he is harsh in the new testament he does bring about his judgment and his wrath on people and he's, and he's fierce with them, even as he's gentle and kind, you know. But also in the Old Testament, he is constantly talking about his faithfulness and his kindness. He's slow to anger. He's gracious and abounding in loving kindness. The psalmists are continually talking about his love, his faithful, unnever-ending love. Also, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead, Caitlin. I was going to say, talking about the Old Testament, again, looking at context for some of these things that might seem really harsh, he takes a really long time to bring judgment on people who are sacrificing their children for like decades or hundreds of years even. So in that sense, he's pretty slow to anger. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'd be angry a little faster. Yeah. And he talks about that too, like at one point in one of the first five books of the Bible, he talks about this idea of like, it's not, their evil has not reached their max yet. Like he is intentionally, like he knows he knows what's going to happen, but he, he is giving them time to repent. He is giving the nations around Israel 
time to make it right with God if indeed yeah. they want to. And he waits 400 plus years yeah. before saying, okay, enough's enough. And we see that with Nineveh too. Like Nineveh, Jonah goes to Nineveh. Nineveh was not a great city. They were pretty awful, but God shows them mercy. Jonah was even angry at God. John, Jonah said, I knew, I knew you were merciful. I knew you wouldn't wipe them out. Yeah. So like, yeah, we do see... Yeah. He's pretty. Yeah, when you, I think reading them, reading your Bible is really good for getting to know God. Yeah. It's like actually reading it, um, the whole thing together, because yeah. like if you just read one little thing, you might be like, oh, God, yeah, judgment. Yeah. But then if you read the whole thing, you see how many times he's merciful. Yeah. And it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And even in this story, there's plenty of places where we'll see his kindness shine through. Um, and one of them, which is a little hidden to us, in um, chapter 3, verse 9, when he calls out and says, where are you? The word he uses there for where isn't just like location, as if he doesn't know. He absolutely knows. But the word, the where there is, is the Greek, the Hebrew is ayah, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, which is essentially like the, I know I left my keys here, but where are they? Like, you, they're supposed to be here, but they're not. And God is, is, is telling Adam, I'm calling out to him, he's like, you're supposed to be right here but you've fled somewhere. And this is this intimacy he has, God has with Adam. And then in verse 21, when uh, he's, he's now given, banished them, he's brought them, he's told them what's going to happen. They're going to die. They're going to be, got to be uh, kicked out of the garden of Eden, which all sounds harsh, but also is just. He's a good God who is just. But in verse 21, it says, the Lord God made garments of skin for his wife, uh, for Adam and his wife. And it's his, act of kindness he clothes them in their shame he's felt they felt shame on because their sin and it got me god meets them right where they're at and covers them with clothing so we have the, like the first sacrifice that happens is god clothing them for their their mistake in the garden so the, his before he banishes them out of the garden he clothes them um and and you can like there's this uh um, <coughs> concept that the, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, begins and ends with God like acting kindly towards someone who didn't, showing grace to someone. Here, clothing Adam and Eve before they're banished. And then it closes with Moses dying at the hill and God burying him and acting, acting kindly toward Moses, even though Moses didn't follow God and, and was not able to go into the promised land because of his disobedience. God acts kindly to him. And so it's as if the book is meant to be bound by these two concepts of God's divine kindness and grace towards us even when we fall and fail. Um, and it's really important that we, we read this book and look for those places where God is acting benevolently, kindly, graciously, towards people because the old testament is still it's full of it even though it looks as if he's being harsher different culture different context acts wars it's it's different there's a whole lot of different things happening that are within a certain context and a framework and yet he acts graciously patiently and kindly and we get to discover a god who knows when to say enough who's beautiful in his in his creativity and loves us to an end we cannot possibly fathom all of the New Testament things we see are out of the Old Testament. They're all things that are built upon the Old Testament. This picture of who God is. Yeah. This is not related, but uh, does anybody remember the? I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think about it, but I can't remember where it is. The the owner of that uh, one donkey that's called. Yeah, Balaam. Balaam. Yeah. Okay, where do I? Yeah, that's in, in Numbers, chapter 20, numbers? yeah, end, end of Numbers. That is such a per beautiful scene, too. Like, it's an odd thing that the, 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 the donkey... 22 through 24. Chapter 22, yeah. Yeah, and the, the, I think it, that story actually fits what we're talking about, because in that scene, right... Israel, with their, they're wandering in the desert because they're disobedient. Um, and then they're complaining against God. They're arguing with God. They're not listening to him. They're constantly at, at, at like on edge with God. They just don't want to trust him. And even as they're bickering with God and not trusting him, 
And then this enemy nation is coming, bringing Balaam to like send curses on it. God is protecting him and won't let Balaam curse this people. He is acting graciously and kindly to a people who don't deserve it. They absolutely do not deserve it at all. And yet God is protecting them. And we get this little scene of Balaam on his donkey being paid to come curse. And yet God will not let him curse. He blesses Israel through it. Which is a really cool story. Any, any other uh, questions here as we kind of wrap up? This is a story of seeing humanity fall and, and give in to desire. And we see desire become disproportionate from here on out. And we live with that same reality. It affects us today. And yet through the cross, Jesus is restoring a way back to this place with God. And that's, that's the hope that one day, and as I said, Revelation 22 is this hope that one day we will enter back into perfect union, just like it was in Eden. Uh, perfect union with God our Father, Jesus our Savior. And we'll be restored back to this tree of life in that sense and live with him forever. Only because of, only because of Christ and giving his life for us. He's, he's brought us back into union with him and paid the price of the fall. Um, there's a whole lot of New Testament writers who comment on this and talk about the, there was the Adam, but we have a new Adam, a new, and uh, Jesus is the new Adam. Just like Adam fell. And I, I, uh, what's the passage for that? I think it's in Romans, I want to say. Yeah, through Adam, all men die. Through Adam, all men die, but through Christ, all men live. You know, it's essentially he's playing on this concept of, yeah, death came through one but life will come through one, Jesus. Um, and this is the hope we have. Jesus is restoring and undoing the work of the fall. And we get to participate with that work as we trust in him, as he helps us walk in step with his, with his voice and letting him transform our desires to their proper place. But I think that's what the story is really about. But that's all I have for us. So thank you so much for coming for questioning the Old Testament. If you want to be with us live for the XA Learning Hour, come to the UWM Student Union, room W145 at 1.30 on Thursdays. Thanks for listening.